Welcome to the Reconcile Community Church podcast. We hope and pray that the resources that will be shared on here would be a blessing to you. If you want more information or to support our church financially as we do the work in the beautiful Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, you can find more information about that at www.reconcilecincy.org. Be blessed. Text today. We're ending our series today in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. There is a small part of Psalm chapter 8 that I am sure you have probably heard before. I'm pretty sure you've probably heard it. Um, And so I want to read to you Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. I think I said Psalm chapter 4, but Psalm chapter 8. That's where we're going, Psalm chapter 8. It says this in these words. It says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of, our, of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy the, and the avenger. It goes on to say, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which, set in, which you set in place, what is a human being that you would remember him? a son of man, that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. I'm sure you've probably heard that before. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, the pass through the currents of seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Psalm chapter 8, where we land the plane today uh, in our sermon series. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray together. Gracious God, we are thankful uh, that we have this opportunity on this morning, one, to be reminded of how you have moved yet again in and through the life of this church and through uh, the body collectively, that today we get to celebrate you moving, you providing Uh, We're reminded that you uh, are a good God who uh, know uh, what we need. And so, Lord, I pray that as we jump into this text this morning, my hope and my prayer is that you uh, would speak to all of us. That in a lot of ways, Lord, that you would um, continue to shape in us a heart of thanksgiving. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged that we will be convicted, but at the same time edified through your word. We're thankful for this gift that you've given to us. Thank you for this opportunity that we have uh, to be able to come together collectively, to be able to hear from you, but then at the same time uh, to fellowship with one another as well. And so, Lord, I pray even now that you would speak, that we would be able to receive what it is that you would have for us to know, say, and do. Lord, it's to that end that we say thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen and a man. Well, one of the things that we see as a common refrain throughout all of the Psalms that we've read, all of the songs that we've preached through, I mean, and we can go on and on and on and on, but one of the common refrains through all of these Psalms, no matter the circumstance, no matter the case, is this idea that there's a resolve to trust in the Lord. No matter what you see throughout the Psalms, and we have gone through some doozies. We've gone through some some uh, Psalms that talk about David being in sticky situations, some troubled sometimes. We've gone through so many different things that have happened, but yet and still, whether it's David, whether it's a psalmist we don't know, 
regardless, they always have this idea, this ability to kind of bounce back, almost as if they're writing themselves clear. They're writing themselves out of the situation. And as the more they write, the more they're remembering the good news of who God is. It's like it almost is as if, man, there's just this resolve, this uncanny ability to find a reason to thank God even when the bottom falls out. And I wish I had a fancy illustration to give to us, but I think the Psalms leading up to this Sunday have provided a great illustration for us. Whether it's David on the run from his son, whether it's a psalmist who we don't know is old in age, who's almost tired and given up on life, but yet still at some point they find the resolve to say, but I'm going to keep on praising you. And over and over and over again, there's something about being a follower of God and simultaneously being able to be thankful no matter of the circumstance. That almost in a lot of ways, we can't say, in a lot of ways, we can't say that believers can be joyless or believers can't be uh, thankful. It's almost like an oxymoron. If we find a Christian who's not thankful, it's an oxymoron. Because there's always something that we can be thankful for. And the psalmist is constantly reminding us of this reality. And it's interesting because in Psalm chapter 8, we find yet another opportunity for this to be the case. We went forward, now we're going backwards. And it's interesting, forward and backwards, there's a reason why we did this. Forward and backwards tells you the same kind of tenor and focus. Although the emotions may be all over the place, there's this uncanny ability for the believer to find a reason to be thankful. To be able to pivot in the midst of the darkness to say, even though I may not know what's happening, I still can be thankful and shoot praises off to a God who is good. The anchor that holds them, the anchor that steadies them is a God who is extremely steady. As the text would say, immutable meaning that he doesn't change, that he is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore, that they can anchor their lives around this God in whom they serve. And for you and I, when the tempest of life happens and we find ourselves on the ocean of trials and tribulations and, and the wind is crashing and the waves are hitting us and we are so uncertain, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our anchor? Because in a lot of ways and a lot of times, sometimes when life hits us the hardest, it's the easiest for us to kind of skate on our opportunity to thank God. But what do we carry? What do we pick up when we just, when we, we throw Thanksgiving out of the off board? What is the first thing that we pick up? This doubt that God is really who he says he is. And the Psalms have taught us throughout the summer that no, this is not the case. And Psalm chapter eight is another Psalm that my hope and my prayer would help shape us and mold us to create a heart of Thanksgiving in all of us. If you were looking for a big idea in Psalm chapter 8, here, here's what the big idea is. For the believer, remembrance in who God the Father is and does can help root us in a posture of thanksgiving no matter our circumstances. That this is a reality. Again, it's the same thing happening over and over again. There's this idea that, man, there's a reason for us to be thankful. And the psalmist is going to give us reasons why we should remember like this. OK, I know you may forget, but let me remind you why you should be thankful. I remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this and we were talking about this idea that, man, um, uh, we, we when we're tired and we're we're burnt out, man, there's some things that we can just grab onto. 
or, or a few days. We talked about how we can worship, why we should worship the creator. They're all callbacks to being like, all right, here's another set of reminders for you if you still having trouble. Here are three that can help us based off of Psalm chapter eight. The first thing that you have to remember that'll help root you in this heart of thanksgiving is that you have to remember his names. You have to remember his names. You need another reason. How can you become thankful? Remember his names. Verse number one says this, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Stop right there. One of the things that we have to in, uh, we have to introduce into this particular psalm is this idea of language. Language matters. When we are reading our scriptures, we have to understand that it wasn't written originally in English, but it was written in Hebrew. And if we understand that, then what we also need to understand is uh, the etymology of words. Hang in there with me. I promise I'm coming. I'm coming. It's important for us to understand the etymology of words. We got to understand like why language matters. There's something about the Hebrew language that's important. They only have 16 known words. There are 16 words that they have. Thank you for catching my lint on my thing. I appreciate it. Um, but there are 6,000 words that they have in their, in their vocabulary. Juxtapose 400,000 words in the English language. And we have a conundrum, meaning that um, the words that they use matter deeply, especially names. You see, today we name our children anything. We'll just name you Covita, Ladasha, uh, Absidy, which is A, B, C, D, E. Um, I can keep going. Uh, one of my friends in Memphis, true story, Kristen and I, friend is an emergency nurse. Uh, well, she was at the time, and she would tell us uh, some of the names that parents would name their children. Uh, and it's crazy, Kawasaki, some other, I mean, it's crazy. Names don't really matter in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes, you know, some people would have names, but for the most part, it's not as important as it was back then. Names mattered, especially in uh, Hebrew culture. So whatever your name was, was really a foreshadowing of what you would become. Or your name would say something about who God was. It mattered. What am I saying? Their names meant something. And it's interesting when we look at our language, when we look at our scriptures, in verse number one, it says, Lord, our, it says, Oh Lord, in some translations, but in the CSB, it says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? It looks like it's the same name, but it's not. It's not. I got the saying that I tell Kristen all the time. I know it looks like we got money in our account, but we don't. And what I'm getting at is this idea that it looks like something, but it may be something different. And here is this idea where we see Lord or oh Lord, our Lord. I've beat this horse long enough. What, what, are, what is this getting at? Well, there are two names that are being given here. The first one is Yahweh. So it says Yahweh. Adonai. It's interesting that the names are the same. It looks the same, but they mean totally different things. Yahweh, Adonai. That's what he's saying. Psalmist is saying. Yahweh, uh, I wouldn't give, try to do the, uh, the Hebrew rendition of it because my Hebrew is shaky at best. It's been years and years and years since I've opened up the Hebrew scriptures and actually done some stuff. Thank God for Lagos. But Yahweh is God's covenant name. 
You find this out in the Old Testament when you see um, Moses come to the burning bush and there's the big proclamation that you are going to go and free the Israelites. And he says, but who am I supposed to go and say who sent me? And he says, I am that I am. That idea, that iteration is this idea, Yahweh. It's an intimate name. It's, it's, it's God's covenant name. Only a, a group, a select group of people get to call him this name. In fact, if you were to go over into Israel right now, they won't even say it. It's almost like Voldemort in uh, Harry Potter. Like they like, we don't say that name because it's so holy. But what they understand is that Yahweh was his covenant name for his people. But then you have Adonai. Adonai is an interesting term because in a lot of ways, um, you have other uh, entities, other false deities that would try to use this term Adonai, but it, it kind of falls short because when, uh, when it's ascribed to God of Israel, what we understand is that this is to denote his power, his ultimate authority. When you think of Adonai, think power, think ruler, think last say, think ultimate judge, think the one who sits above all, who has the power to do whatever he wants. So he's like intimate God, ruler over everything. And this excites me. And the reason why it excites me is because he's getting at something here. That in a lot of ways, the psalmist opens up and he's like, your name is magnificent. And he's reminded of the closeness of God. But then he's also blown away by how magnificent God is by his power that he demonstrates. If you need a reason to be thankful, you can be thankful to a God who's closer to you than the very skin on your bones but at the same time, more powerful enough to handle any situation that may come about. And he's ascribing these two things. But what does this look like in a practical level for us? It's important for us to understand that he's not just a God who hangs stars and moons and skies. And believe me, that's awesome in and of itself. But let's look at this idea that he is Yahweh. This covenant God that's close, that's caring. And in essence, he is a good father. It shows the fatherly presence of God on display. How do we see this? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to inundate you with scriptures because I want you to get uh, in real time just this idea of Yahweh, uh, this idea of the covenant God, the God who's close, the God who's near, the God who loves, the God who protects, the God who is very much so present in all day affairs. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1 says, now that uh, now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. And the emphasis here, the italicized is mine. You are mine. It's interesting where he's writing this at. Isaiah the prophet is writing this and the Israelites are uh, in Babylon in captivity. And in the midst of this crazy situation where it seems as if God abandoned them, God reminds them that ain't the case. You mind. I got you. It's this idea that I'm near to you. I know what's happening. That he's a God who's close. And in a lot of ways, we can find ourselves in situations just like them in a place that is not our own, in a home that is not our own. With people that may seem like they are against everything that we are about. 
The fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ may invite more uh, uh, hostility than, you know, acceptance. And in the midst of maybe the, the trials of life, when it feels like you are alone, it's this whisper from the text that reminds you that you have a God that loves you and is near to you. You are his. But he also has compassion for us. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, as a father has compassion on his children, italicized this mind as, as well. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He has compassion for you. And I think sometimes we forget this, that God, sometimes we think that God just puts up with us. But no, God cares for us deeply. He loves us. He has compassion towards you. We've all experienced this as children, where someone had compassion for you. Even when you were messing up and bumping your head and doing stuff you weren't supposed to do, compassion is this resolve to continue to come near, even in the midst of the brokenness, even when you're not even turning towards them. Compassion is compelling you to do something about it. It's compassion that will uh, bring a father down to his knee to meet face to face with their child. Compassion is when a child cries and that parent is there to console them. Compassion is this idea that when you see the brokenness, there's something deep within you that says, I need to do something about it. And it's saying that that idea of compassion is literally lavished upon you because he's near. He shows compassion to you. All of the moments and times where, where you have been brokenhearted, the beauty of our God is that he's brokenhearted with you. And he draws near because he's Yahweh. But he gives loving care and direction. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 says, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Sometimes we get mad at the Lord and we're like, man, I don't know why you're allowing this to take place. And God's like, I love you. That's why. If I did not love you and I just let you do whatever, it'll show you like you could it could lead to your destruction and to your end. Sometimes God smacks your hand because he loves you. Sometimes he's like, no, and redirects you because he loves you. He's directing and he's guiding you. He's saying, look, I love you enough to make sure that you are on the path even when you don't want to be on it. Why? Because he's near. But he's gentle with us. He's gentle with us. First Kings chapter 19, verse 12, it says this, and this is, um, this is uh, as Elijah is talking to, um, as he's trying to have an audience with God. And this is an interesting passage because he was a little upset with God, like, there, you know, God was not doing some stuff that he wanted him to do. So he's like, hey, I need, we need to have a conversation. Listen to how the Lord responds to this. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. There's this beautiful thing where, in a lot of ways, he was trying to have an audience with God and was looking for God in all the wrong places. He was wanting God to come in this bigness, in this massiveness, in the earthquake, and in the winds, and in the storm, and the fire, and all of this. And God's like, near, a whisper. You can't handle that. But God knows that. And he loves you enough to meet you where you are. He's gentle with us. And even today, he whispers. 
Now, sometimes that whisper may get a little louder, but it's to show off the intimacy with God, that he loves his creation enough, that he's gentle. These stories that we read in the Old Testament, we, we can think that they are one-offs, that, man, this is only just an incident that just happens with Elijah or it happens with Moses or it happens with the Old Testament, you know, individuals in the, within the Old Testament. But the reality is they show us who God is and how he operates with humanity, especially his own. There's this constant refrain that as you're looking at the Old Testament, you are usually the broken person in the story. You're not, you know, David, you know, killing Goliath. No, you're the people on the hill. Like you, every story, you are the broken recipient of God's grace. But it's to show us how he interacts with us. And this idea of God being Yahweh, and it's denoting this, it's reminding us of his intimacy with us. Names matter. But not only do we get this, but then we also get this idea that he is Adonai at the same time. So as much as we are like thankful that God is near, we should also be thankful that he's all powerful. But now there's some stuff on the other side that we got to come to grips with. There's some stuff about God that we got to be like, Whoo, we can't just come to him any kind of way. Because there is a reverence that we should have with him. He's near. He loves us. He loves you. But he's also all-powerful. As much as he ruthlessly loves his children, he ruthlessly dis- defends his holiness in God in all of the earth. Psalm 89, um, verse 14 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25 says, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And this idea and concept is this idea that, man, God is so strong and powerful. He's like, you're not going to just smash all of us, right? Like, you, you're not, I mean, you can, but like, don't do that. Like, but what is he getting at? He's showing you the reverence. Like, this is a God who has authority and power, who's strong and mighty. Now, he will judge the wicked. He will spare the righteous. But there is a reality that you have to come to grips with that if God wants to, he can. Like, God, would you do this? The answer is like, I can, but it's to show us his power and his might. Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7 says this, the Lord passed in front of him, talking about uh, uh, Moses uh, saying here, and he says, and proclaim the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity of rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. It's interesting. We love the back end of that to be like, man, see, this is the, this is the passage to show God is just like Old Testament God is evil, right? Like, and they say like he's schizophrenic, but we've missed the first part. He's like, I'm gracious. I got a long runway. I'm, I'm going to give you chance after chance after chance after chance. After chance, after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance, after chance. But eventually, I'm going to have to do something. And when I do something, it's going to be to an extent that you cannot even calculate or comprehend. That on one end, he is gracious, but on one end, he does execute justice and judgment of wrongdoing. 
we fail to forget that all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God giving long on ramps for the people of God. And they just keep turning like we're not going to do it. And then when he moves the way he moves and it's so drastic, it's so mighty. We're like, why in the world is he doing this? But we don't get to see all of the time between the words that we read on the pages of God being faithful and just being constant and being there and being present. But it also shows us that he is mighty and strong. Names matter. They matter. And if you need a reason to be thankful for God, you can be thankful that he is a God who is near and who is all powerful. Let me see if I can make this plain. So most of you know me as Pastor Brandon, Brandon, this, the other, but th that's my name. But did you know that there are ways that you say my name that can get me to react differently? The best person who knows this is none other than my wife. There are multiple names that I have in my house, and depending on which name she calls of me will get something out of me. So she's like, hey, babe, I'm like, well, that means that she wants me to come near. It's probably something generally nice. It's probably like a setup for like a honeydew or something like that. It's going to be something like that. But it's going to respond. I'm going to respond differently. If she says Pastor Wooder, I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> if she says Big Brandon, that means that she's trying to get my uh, um, she's trying to get my attention because little Brandon is probably in the picture. And because of that, she's probably it's going to be something to do with my kids. But she says, Brandon then I know that it's time for her, that she needs the intimate part of me, that she's about to share something that's heavy, that's on her heart. The way that she speaks to me, the way that she calls out to me is going to get a response from me. And the bigger question for us is that, man, at times, this is what's so amazing. This is what's so beautiful about who God is. When you are crying out to God, you may not know which uh, characteristic you need of him. You're just like, God, help me. And this is why he's so good. He knows exactly what you're asking him for. He knows which name that you are calling out to. He knows when you cry out or even when the spirit is uttering on your behalf and you don't know what to say. The beautiful thing is that God knows. And there's this beautiful thing that he's like, and I'm going to react and I'm going to respond accordingly. Why? Because they are mine. And that's why he says, come to me. That's why he says, cry out to me. That's why he's constantly inviting us to come to him in prayer. Why? Because he can translate your intranslatable language that you give to him. When you don't know what to say, he knows exactly what you're saying. So remember his names. But then secondly, we have to remember his works. Remember his works. Verse two and three says this from, from the mouths of infants, nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Not I was going to make a Marvel joke, but I'm not. Uh, verse three. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. Stop right there. I, I went through this a couple weeks ago when I just kind of nerded out on y'all just about the literally the expanse of. Of, of, of everything. It is literally uh, awe-inspiring. It is crazy to think of the reality that, man, the creation of God, the God, not creation of God, but the creation of creation by God. There you go. Had to clarify it in my head. And it's, it's interesting. The cure to finding hope in the midst of trials is to remember that our God flexes. This idea that he's like, you, 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 you struggling? I, I, I want to remind you that I created everything. It's almost like he's like, let me show you who I am. 
the best cure for us when we feel overwhelmed, literally, is to go outside and to look up. That's essentially what the psalmist is saying. It's interesting. Every time that, that God is trying to get them to remind them of who he is and how powerful he is, he's always recounting something about creation. Because if you think about creation at its infancy, it literally blows you away. That it started with nothing but him just chilling. And all of a sudden, he started to speak, as the scriptures tell us, and things that were not became what they were. That at some point, light didn't know it was light until God spoke it, and it was light. Like, there's this massive reality that we have to wrestle with, this concept of creation, that he would create all of these things. And he's like, if you ever feel overwhelmed by the situations and trials that you face, if you're having doubts about who I am, if you don't know how you can be thankful for me, look up at the sky. I created that. And sometimes we don't, like, think about this. Like just tonight, I want you to just go outside. Now, I know it may be smog and all this crazy stuff, but go outside and you might see some glimmers. And as you're looking up there, I just want you to think about this. Currently, it is measured to be uh, the expanse, the universe is measured to be 150 billion light years. And for reference, one light year is equal to six trillion miles. I'm going to give that to you again. One light year is a unit of measurement that can be six million miles. What they know to be true so far is that the universe is 150 billion light years wide. There are 200 billion stars in our galaxy, but here's the thing that just is staggering for my brain. But there are 100 billion galaxies. There are 200 moons in our solar system, but there are 500 known solar systems in our galaxy. Your brain is probably trying to compute that reality. That's the point, the massiveness of it, the intricate details of it. The fact that it says in a lot of ways that, that God dis, does this with his finger, like how you literally are clicking with a mouse on your keyboard. And he's just like, ooh, 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 speaking, just I'm going to hang that there, this there, this there, and this. It's to show you just how powerful and mighty and strong our God is. And it's interesting that they use this idea. The psalmist says, and he does it by his fingers. I like this. When you go and get a Ph.D., uh, in theology or anything like that, especially if it's Old Testament, you're going to be an expert on very obscure passages and very obscure phrases in the scriptures. In fact, one of my professors got a PhD on the fingers of God. Like he did his whole PhD researching this idea of the fingers of God. And one of the things that he denotes in some of his writings is this idea that the fingers of God is this idea of God's unmatched power. And he shows that, man, the fingers of God are referenced another time in the book of Exodus. And it's interesting where it's referenced. It's referenced in the midst of the ten plagues. At one point, the magicians are like, yo, this is happening by the fingers of God. It's at that point that they turn to the Pharaoh and like, we got nothing, bro. We, we can't, we can do a little stuff, but like this, we can't do. Like there's, we can't match this. If we all got together and we all conjured up the same, it would not pale, it would pale in comparison to who this God is. Like you got to chill. This is, he is different. That's essentially what his PhD work was about. 
this idea that when you see the denotion of the finger of God, it's to point to this reality that, man, God is different. This ain't no other ordinary deity that's always failing to come through. No, this is a God with infinite power. The God who hung galaxies and moons and light years and all of this stuff that we don't even can't even comprehend and all of the intricate details, not just of the expanse, but then you start thinking about the intricate details of just you. The fact that you were born is a modern day miracle. The fact that your eyes are like where they are and not like one here and one here is a miracle. It's all woven together by the finger of God. And what holds all of this together, as Colossians chapter one says, is Jesus, the one who is the one at the center of it all. And it's this idea that everything obeys him. Satan's ploy is to get us to focus on the problems and the cares when God is saying, don't focus on the situation. Look up. As Matthew chapter six basically tells you in a nutshell, I got you. Creation understands that we as him, as the people made in his image seem to just struggle with that, though. You ain't never seen a bird stressed out. Because by some inherent reason, they know that everything's going to be all right. But why do we struggle? But the remedy is that God is like, I gave you plenty of opportunities to be corrected. Why? Because he loves you. But then lastly, and I'm out of your hair, remember his call to us. Remember his call to us. I won't be long here at this point. I've belabored long enough. Verses four through nine goes through, in a lot of ways, verses four through nine basically is the psalmist reflecting on this reality that God invited them into the narrative. Like the psalmist is blown away, like, I cannot believe that you added us. You, you letting us a part of this, God? That's essentially what he's like. They're like, I, I don't understand why in your right mind you would let us be a part of the narrative. Sometimes we superimpose the brokenness that we face here on earth onto God. And I know in a lot of cases and a lot of times, a lot of people don't say this, but man, a lot of people carry this. There's this, there's just some junk in our past, these, these whispers of brokenness that try to perpetuate in our lives where we're not good enough, that God can't use us, that we're a failure, or you know, you may have been an accident, you may have been adopted, all of these different things. And there are these, there's these, there are these background noise of our lives that, man, if we're not uh, careful, we'll listen to it long enough and we'll begin to internalize this stuff and we'll begin to live out those realities. These broken soundtracks, as um, as uh, I can't think of the, the author would say it, but these broken soundtracks that we would constantly, John Acuff, there you go, that we constantly listen to. But there's another soundtrack that should be blaring in your ear, that you were made in the image and likeness of God, that there was something that was good about you, that when God created you, he was like, that's good. To the fact of the point of the matter that even though you were broken and marred, we were all broken and marred by sin, he says, but Jesus coming that he wants you back, that there's this idea that he's radically pursuing us, that there's a constant knock at our heart, like that there's this reality that the same God who literally created all of this wants you. 
to be a part of the narrative. That he didn't create you as a robot, but he gave you choice to choose. And he's going to, as a cosmic gentleman, play his part. That's mind-boggling. Sometimes we, like, forget this. With all of our jacked-up selves, God is like, I still want you to be a part of it. And so as we think about this, as we think about this idea of why we should be thankful, yet we remember his name. We look up, but can I give you one other? Look down at your hands, because your hands tell a story. This is what the psalmist is getting at. The psalmist is saying this. He's like, God created you, created us in his image. That's the Imago Dei. That's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That everything else got spoken, but you got formed. Everything else got created. He's like, that is good. But after everything was created and after he created you and I, and he breathes the Ruach of God into us, the spirit of God in us so that we can be a living, moving being. He says, after all of this, this is very good. That we were the pinnacle of creation. And the text says he calls us and gave us a position, us higher than even the angels. But there are scriptures in here in the New Testament that should be mind boggling to you. The fact that angels long to see what is in this book and they can't. They can't see what's being played out. But you get the mystery, as Paul says, and Peter alludes to. That there's this idea that even the angels with all of the fanciness and craziness that we see of them, they still pale in comparison to where you are on the food chain, so to speak. That you have an ultimate, you have a seat that is, man, so coveted and is so beautiful that God is like, no, but I chose them. You get the mystery. When Jesus died on the cross, the angels in heaven were just as confused as us. It wasn't that they had the whole story. In fact, even on this side, they still can't see how it's all going to play out because they don't get to see this, but you do. You were made a little bit under this, the angels. You're not God. You can't speak things into existence. That's not what this text is saying. People have misconstrued this text to say a whole bunch of crazy stuff. That's not what the text is saying. There's only one God who can speak things into existence. Romans chapter 14 is the verse that they try to quote here, but that is not the case. God is the only one, but you are his though. So even though you can't speak things into existence, you know the one who can speak things into existence. That's the point. When you look at your hands, it's like, man, I'm not a mistake. Now, the circumstances that I got here may have looked like a mistake, but God wrote me into this. I am valuable. And here's the thing that's beautiful. We see Genesis chapter 3, and we see the brokenness that takes place. And it looks like Adam and Eve, gets, they get kicked out of the garden. We're like, dang, they lost their, they lost everything. They didn't lose everything. They lost, their, they lost their resonance, but they still were called to multiply. And the same thing is true for you. Even though you are broken, even though, you, even though we have experienced sin and brokenness, the call is going to still be the same for us who are in Christ. You are still a part of the narrative with your jacked up self. That it doesn't quit. Like he still uses you. The reason why you became a Christian and you didn't go to heaven is right away because he got work for you. You are a part of the narrative. That's so good for us to understand. And that's what the text is telling us. 
all of the rest of the verse is the this this uh, psalmist literally being blown away that God invites them. So what do our hands remind us? That God is not finished with us yet. Our hands remind us that we're called to more than just earthly treasures. When you look down at your hand, your hand reminds you that you are invited into the kingdom agenda. When you look at your hands, you are valued more than you could ever imagine. When you look down at your hands, you are loved more than you could ever imagine. When you look down at your hands, we are reminded that we are perfectly forgiven, set free, and ensured a place with the Father through his precious Son. Why should you be thank, uh, thankful? Because you included in the narrative. Why should you be thankful? That it wasn't on your account that you had to uh, get into heaven, but it was because of what Christ has done. Because left to yourself, you would never be able to uh, pay that bill. You could never cover the tab. But thanks be to God that through Christ that, man, you don't have to, but you can trust in what he has done on your behalf. When you look at your hands, it is a picture of a masterpiece that, man, God is still using you in some way, shape, or form to bring him glory. Psalm 8 ends with the opening refrain. It's this idea of, you know, what they would call a chiasm. It's this idea that, man, there's like these bookends. And if you were to keep looking, it's like they fly. You can literally fold this psalm on his, on his head. It's like the same stuff. It's just kind of over and over and over again. It begins with a praise account. It ends with a praise account of how magnificent God is. That no matter the circumstance, God loves us more than we could ever imagine. And that he's worthy of praise in all that he does. So as we close today, I want to encourage you. As we've looked through the Psalms, I want to encourage you to be reminded that there's much for us to be thankful for. That God is a God who loves us deeply. God is a God who is intimately involved with us. That he's nearer to us than the very skin on your bones. But that he's more powerful enough to handle any circumstance that may happen. That he's a God that we can be thankful for. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to be reminded of just how good and awesome you are. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, be with us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remind us of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I'm thankful that even in the midst of these moments where we find seasons of doubt, where there's seasons where we believe the broken soundtracks, we're thankful that you continue to speak, that you continue to remind us, and that you give us multiple opportunities uh, to see just how much and how awesome you are and why we should be thankful for you. Thank you for writing us into the narrative. Thank you for using us. Thank you for loving us. Uh, thank you for providing for us. To that end, Lord, that we say thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.